Welcome everyone back to Question Field, the place where you ask the questions and we field them. The we, of course, being myself, Brian, and I'm joined as always by Campbell. This week, instead of uh, some witty banter to get us going, how about we cut the frills and we just hop right back into our discussion on lasers. I mean, I do recommend that you check out last week's episode, but uh, maybe you're feeling a little dangerous, in which case you can join us again. Uh, And so here's our discussion, starting right now. Okay, but there are some... There are some sort of issues with that story. Okay. Uh, so we can sort of maybe get into more of the weeds now as to sure. uh, how these things are actually going to work. Now, the first thing is we've, I said that we have these, well, we've got this column of, that we've got this column of gas. Mm-hmm. And the first thing is that if you just have this one column of gas, uh, a photon on average is going to travel through uh, maybe half the length of that column. Mm-hmm. Light that passes through this gain medium experiences amplification. So it, its intensity goes up by a factor which looks like e to the power of something times the length of the gain medium that it uh, that it goes through. Does that make sense? So it's sort of like as you increase the, the length of the gain medium, the amount of amplification okay. goes yeah. up exponentially. So so really long pipe for... Exactly. For my, okay. okay. <laughs> Very long pipe would be, would be great. Except we don't really want to have a laser that is, I don't know, 100 meters long right, or something like right. that. Yeah, you, you don't want to leave too many defensive... Uh, uh, e, e, the, the, the smaller <laughs> it is, the easier it'll be to defend. And uh, Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So the, the solution to this is um, we put mirrors on both ends of the, of the tube. Um, and so there's, this is where the similarity to your mirrored box comes in. So we've got this column of gas and we've got mirrors at both ends. And so now the light is, is traveling through the, the gas many, many, many times because it's bouncing between the mirrors. Mm. Okay, but we would quite like a laser beam, right? We would like something coming out of the other end. And so what we usually do is we make one of those mirrors kind of semi-transparent. So some of the light is going to be reflected, but some of the light is going to pass through. Mm-hmm. So, we're, so we're not just taking like a paper clip and punching a little hole into it. <laughs> we are, yeah, usually not doing not that. Doing that. And okay. just, just, to, just to be clear. Okay. <laughs> That's right. And I guess the reason would be that, so light passing through a hole experiences something called diffraction, where it sort of spreads out. Even light that is uh, what we call plane waves. So all of the light is in phase, it's traveling in the same direction, and the the peaks line up with the peaks and the troughs line up with the troughs. Even that light, after it passes through a hole like an aperture, it spreads out. And uh, so the, the amount of spreading is increased if you decrease the size of that hole. So we would like the laser beam to to be traveling in one direction, and that means we would like quite a large hole in comparison to the wavelength of the light. And so that means it's better to have a, a semi-transparent mirror rather than a little tiny hole that we punch into the into the mirror. I'm sure there are other reasons as well that I, I am, I'm not giving justice to, um, but I think that's off the top of my head that I would say that would be a good reason why you wouldn't want to do the hole punch method rather than the semi-transparent <laughs> right, mirror right. method. Okay. All right, I'll invest in the semi-transparent mirrors. You sold me. <laughs> <laughs> but it is a bit counterintuitive, right? Because yeah. you, you think, well, you get all of this amplification, but you're you're not getting as, as great a power in your final output yeah. beam as you, as you could. Mm-hmm. So that's the sort of trade-off you make. But the... The benefit of these these two mirrors is that a photon is going to be bouncing off the mirrors multiple times, 
which means it's passing through the gain medium multiple times right. and experiencing a lot of amplification because it's because that amplification is is exponentially increasing with the length of gain medium it passes through. Right. Okay, so um that's one aspect of the sort of reality of this uh, of this laser system that we're designing. Hmm. But you might think as you suggested with the the light box that you would have mirrors around the tube so that all of the light was sort of concentrated into the tube, mm. right? That turns out not to be the way that it actually works in practice. What we have is mirrors on both ends of the tube, but nothing preventing the light from escaping either side. Right, okay. So you can imagine that some of the light, if it's not directed completely down the axis of the tube, is going to get lost and going to uh, escape out of that tube. Right. Whereas light that is passing, or light that is directed really closely down the axis of that tube is going to pass through the gain medium multiple times without uh, getting dispersed and and escaping out one of the sides of the tube. Right. And the reason that we have this sort of semi-open tube system is that that selects only a very small number of discrete frequencies that can be amplified by the tube. Okay, so what does that mean? Okay, so if, if you imagine uh, a string like a violin string or a guitar string or something like that. One of these classic things that you learn about when you learn about waves are standing waves. So a standing wave, uh, have you you've maybe heard about standing waves before? Yeah. So your string has a length, and if mm -hmm. your wavelength is either the length of the string or some integer division of, <laughs> of the length... Uh, yeah. And you get your your like the nodes yes, of the yeah, that's, yeah that's what I was saying the, the wave the, yeah to yeah. to kind of match up right at the start and the end and then mm -hmm. it will it will stand <laughs> as yeah says. yeah exactly yeah. this this standing wave is like a wave which doesn't propagate energy if you, if you look at it it's like the entire string is sort of moving up and down right. um, without these little packets that are moving backwards and forwards and so that sort of process happens with light as well um, you you get sort of nodes at both ends of the of this box mm -hmm. or this cavity that we that we've created so uh, nodes of the wave at the two mirrors and then in between you get uh standing waves which are you know which are the electric and magnetic fields oscillating um oscillating greatly in the in the middle mm -hmm. and so it turns out that when you uh, make one of these boxes called a resonator um you can only have certain allowed wavelengths that can resonate or have standing waves inside this this box it's just like on a string you can only have you can only have a standing wave with a wavelength which is like half of the length of the string right. or yeah i think you can have twice the length of the string because you can have one the yeah uh, yeah yeah exactly one half wavelength right taking up the entire length of the string and then you can have a quarter of the length of the string and so on so same thing with light in a in a resonator box but if you create a 3d resonator so if you have mirrors on all sides of your box mm -hmm the number of allowed wavelengths which can uh, form standing waves inside that box. Oh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to go up. Exactly. Yeah, you're going to have many, many more. And that's not what you want. You only want to select one specific wavelength. And you might say, well, we've already selected one wavelength with this transition. Mm -hmm. Yes, except that was a very simplified picture. Right. <laughs> and in reality, instead of having one wavelength which is uh, going to experience gain, which is, you know, going to, one wavelength which is going to be amplified, there's this whole uh, sort of continuum of wavelengths which can be amplified, and you get a you you get sort of different levels of amplification depending on your wavelength, 
And one of them is going to experience the greatest level of amplification, but you're you're going to have amplification around a whole sort of, yeah, a whole bell curve of, right, of frequencies. Right. And so the reason that you have these mirrors then is that maybe all sorts of wavelengths are going to experience amplification, but only one of those wavelengths is going to be able to form a standing wave inside this resonating box. And the other ones are just going to sort of Right, they're just going to fizzle dissipate. out. Or, yeah, yeah. Exactly. So I guess you kind of want to tune your cavity length to just one then mm-hmm. you know one one ideal yeah so the 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 one wavelength that you want to select for all right so yeah. costs are going up because of our transparent mirror but we we but we don't need to get as many mirrors as we initially budgeted for uh, yeah i guess yeah, so. okay. that's right excellent excellent, excellent. <laughs> that's um, one sort of aspect of to to consider mm. and this this uh by the way this this region of wavelengths that can experience gain or amplification comes with an associated thing, mathematical thing called the gain profile. So that's basically like a curve, which you have, if you imagine having the frequency or wavelength on the x-axis and on the y-axis, you have what's called the gain coefficient. So the sort of amount of gain that you can get out of, um, out of the um, gain medium at that frequency. Mm. And then you get this curve, which is the gain coefficient versus the frequency. And that curve is called the gain profile. So it's like a bell curve. um, And it's peaked, the bell, the bell curve has peaked at the sort of frequency that we want um, based on the sort of ac- atomic transition that we have selected for in the gain medium. And what we would really like is that the length of our, of our tube selects out that, that one frequency that we want to amplify right at the peak of that gain profile. Right. And yeah, and then if we do that, we are hopefully getting lasing. <laughs> Beautiful. Beautiful. We could, I mean, it's kind of an interesting uh, set of quantum mechanical things that produce the the broadening of that of that gain profile because and initially i said well you only have this one transition right, right. between the first ex- excited state and the ground state and all of the light produced is going to be in that wavelength mm. and all of the light that can be amplified is going to be in that wavelength right do you have any idea any ideas as to why it might be the case that in fact more wavelengths than just that one can be gained or can be uh, can experience amplification because atoms are fickle (laughs) so one thing that could happen is probably something that most people have heard about it's the doppler effect Mm. so that's the effect that means that if you're going past an ambulance or an ambulance is more likely going past you you hear the frequency of sound sort of shifting down as it moves away from you compared to when it's moving towards you. So the the sort of wavelength of the sound gets bunched up as it moves towards you and so the wavelength decreases. And as it moves away from you, the wavelength gets sort of spread out because of its its motion relative to you. And and in, in an acoustic sense, we would hear that as like a change in pitch. So exactly. it's, it's rising yeah, and, then, that's right. and then falling. Around. Perfect. And so that happens with light as well. So if, if an atom is moving towards you, and you shine some light on it, the atom sees light, which is slightly shifted into a into a smaller wavelength mm. compared to the light that you think you're sending at it. Right. And if it's moving away, it's uh, shifted to a slightly larger wavelength. And so that shift, that Doppler shift is important in cosmology and astronomy. Um, That's how we know that everything is moving far away. From exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. But it's also important in in the operation of lasers. So, for example, if an atom, from the perspective of the atom, can I can I take a stab at it? So, please go. Yeah. So I guess it would be you know you have your excited electron that's ready to get whack a mold, and the 
light is coming towards it, but it's going to see it as a lower frequency of light than it needs. Is that better? yeah? Well, it, it depends on the relative motion between the atom and right, the right. okay, yeah, and the sort of source of well, the light. Yeah, so the point is that they're gonna. It's not gonna be what it wants necessarily. Mm, okay, exactly. Yeah, it's not gonna be at the frequency that corresponds to its energy transition. Or alternatively, if if I send some, maybe maybe the transition corresponds to this very specific frequency of green light, and I send some blue light mm. at it. Now, blue light has a shorter wavelength. And the atom is moving uh, far uh, is is moving away from me. So all of the light from that I send to it, it sees as slightly redder. It's slightly longer wavelength than it right, actually is, right. or than it yeah. than it is according to me. And so because that light is stretched out according to the atom, the atom thinks, oh, this is perfect. The light's coming at me, and it's got the right energy now. And so I can release my photon. I can be stimulated right. emitted or whatever <laughs> um yeah 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 so and but according to me it doesn't have the right energy and so it's uh and so we've got this range of energies because these atoms are traveling at all sorts of different speeds relative to me and so because of that we get this range of energies that can be uh that can cause stimulated emission mm. okay so that's one reason there are other reasons as well and the other reasons have to do with the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. So this is, this is a very famous principle from quantum mechanics. And the specific one that I'm thinking of relates uncertainty in energy with a duration of time or uncertainty in time. It's a bit of a weird side of the principle. <laughs> so what that means is that in this particular context, if, a, if an excited state is only existing for a short a short period of time, then there is some uncertainty in the energy of that excited state. So there is a reason that we can think of these excited states as only existing for a short period of time. The first is that in this gas, these atoms are bouncing off each other with really high frequency. And so each time they bounce off each other, they sort of get randomized, right? They get chucked into some other energy state, or maybe they go back to their ground state. But each time they are sort of, on average, just getting completely reset into some random state. So the excited state is only existing for a sort of short period of time because of that. And so the, this uh, this means that the transition, the atomic transition, is, is again sort of broadened a little bit. This is called um, collision broadening. And yeah, and so, so we get a, a range of frequencies that can experience gain. Similarly, we also have something else which is causing a, a shortening of the time in which the atom can remain in its excited state. So that is, if you remember from earlier, that's the spontaneous emission. So because these atoms can spontaneously emit light, it means that they are not in that excited state for an infinite amount of time. There's sort of, there's some finite right, right. cap on how long they are remaining in that excited state. Yeah, yeah. And so because of that finite- It's, it's finite. tough to stay excited. Like, <laughs> give me good news, I'll be excited, but not, not forever. <laughs> that's right. So I, I empathize. Yeah, so. that's right, that's right. So um, yeah, maybe our audience are thinking, well, I'm, yeah, I can, I, I can understand being unexcited by things right now. Hopefully not. Yeah, so anyway, so the, 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 the fact that these excited states have a finite lifetime means that there's uncertainty associated with the energy of those excited states because of Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. Hmm. 
And so we've got this collision broadening, and then we've got the broadening associated with spontaneous emission, which is called radiative broadening. Radiative broadening. And so, yeah, all of this, uh, along with the Doppler effect, is contributing to this broadening of the gain profile, this phenomenon in which multiple frequencies of light can experience gain. And that's why we need this resonating box to select out only one of them. Okay, so that was a lot of quantum So many ways stuff. to break our laser. <laughs> <sighs> yes, indeed, indeed. And indeed, there's, there's also um, a kind of another, well, there are many more things to consider in our, in our laser design. For example, our pump needs to be uh, above a certain power. We need to mm. input above a threshold power mm. because if it's below this power, then there aren't enough atoms in the excited state in comparison to those in the ground state, and we get we don't get the population version that we want. Right. And importantly, the rate of spontaneous emission might be too high in comparison to our pump rate. So it, you know, all of our atoms in the excited state could just sort of fall down into the ground state more rapidly than we uh, promote them from the ground state into the excited state. Okay. So there's that this principle of threshold that you need to be above. That's another thing uh, to consider. Good, good pump. Good pump. <laughs> Put it on the list. That's right. <laughs> maybe that's enough to think about for now. <laughs> yeah. Another thing maybe could be to, uh, to talk about is saturation. So after a certain intensity of uh, of light, after the light sort of gets amplified by a certain amount, the the amount of amplification goes down because the population of the excited state sort of becomes equal to that of the ground state. And so there's this sort of efficiency window where if you go too high with the pump rate then you're not getting as much bang for your buck in terms of the intensity of light that's coming out so okay all of these things to consider so get a, so get a, get a good pump but not one that's too good it's got we need a goldilocks pump it's got to be exactly <laughs> custom fitted we got <laughs> <laughs> exactly right it sounds like this is like <laughs> It's like amazing because it's one of those things where I, I haven't looked up the history of the laser. Like maybe somebody had an idea for this. Maybe this was like all an accident, but like we kind of built up this beautiful scenario of how we can just get this nice domino cascade effect and it'll, and now it's just like, I can just imagine the, the first group of people trying to make the first laser and they're just like, oh, our threshold we, we're not meeting the threshold. We need more power. And then it's like, now you're saturating it, man. Like, and just going back and forth. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's... Uh, Many fights were probably had. It was worse than a game of Risk. It was just it was a bloodbath. But then they got it to work. They got it's it to a work. difficult thing to build a laser. I mean, the principles behind it, this spontaneous emission, stimulated emission, all that stuff, that was discovered by Einstein in the early 1900s. But it took until the 60s to actually build a proper working laser. Really? Wow. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, no, it's no mean feat. <laughs> but for you, you want a laser that can blow up a, a planet, don't you? Ideally. Ideally. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Or significantly damage. I mean, listen, you, you blow up one, the rest are going to get in line, right? So, even <laughs> if it's a smaller planet, like... We can probably probably get away with that, and then and just be fine. So I'm not asking for like the biggest laser. It just needs to, but big enough, big enough. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. And for purely benevolent reasons, of course. Uh, it, it goes without saying, Campbell. Goes without <laughs> saying, of course. Cool. Uh, so there is actually some somebody who has thought about the energy that that would be involved in 
(laughs) in (laughs) destroying a planet. And in fact, there's even some people who have calculated the energy bill that you would incur if you tried to blow (laughs) up a planet. (laughs) Uh, Apparently, just if you were interested, the cost per day to run a Death Star Mm -hmm. um, is 6.2 octillion British pounds. Wow. (laughs) So, something similar in US. God, and with the exchange rate, that's... that's, I'm going to be yeah, buried these days. <laughs> I'm never going to financially recover from my Death Star. <laughs> um, so uh, the way that they worked out the amount of energy that you would need to produce is they thought about, okay, so you've got this planet and we imagine it's sort of a bunch of tiny little rocks. Mm. What's the energy that you would need to put in to move all of these rocks off to infinity? So sort of overcoming the gravitational potential energy. Mm that's holding these rocks together. And for a planet, the mass of the Earth, that turns out to be, I think it's 10 to the power of 32 joules of energy. That's pretty... Um, that's, that's up there. That's, that's up pretty there. high. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, 10 to the 32 joules. Apart from, apart from that being like an insane amount of energy and you've got to get that energy somehow, light has, based on relativity and uh, and also sort of classical electromagnetism, light has momentum. So uh, this is sort of one of the principles that, that Einstein helped came up with, uh, come up with, sorry. So because of the conservation of momentum, if you are producing a huge amount of energy in the form of light and the, the momentum that that light carries is given by the energy divided by the speed of light, so E divided by C. Um, so if you work out the amount of of momentum that the light carries. Is it going to spit my Death Star back <laughs> out of the solar Exactly, system? exactly. It's going to oh, produce no. some recoil on the Death Star. And that, that momentum needs to be the same in magnitude right. as, as the light has in order to, uh, to satisfy conservation of momentum. And if you work out how much momentum uh, or how, how, what sort of speed that would produce for the Death Star to preserve momentum... I think they approximated the mass of the Death Star to be uh, 10 to the 17 kilograms. So, I, I, how does that? How did they work that out? So, um, 10% solid metal uh, and I think the, the size of the moon or something like that. Anyway, so some, some right, right. large amount of, uh, of mass, but not too big. Then the speed that it's uh, going to be moving at after all of that momentum is transferred into it is about 3% the speed of light. Uh, <laughs> so, pretty fast. Which I, I, I think quite... I mean, sorry to, to remind you of the lack of originality yeah. of your, of your wonderful yeah. idea, Brian, but I think that, that um, provides a very funny alternative uh, idea for, the, for these uh, Star Wars scenes. <laughs> <laughs> producing his laser beam and the Death Star getting shot off in the opposite direction. Everybody on board gets liquefied immediately. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, so a lot of energy, a lot of um, and a lot of. Uh, <laughs> That's hilarious. That's a so lot funny. of momentum. That's so funny. Uh, and and just for comparison, so that so okay, here we go. That uh, that amount of energy, ten to the thirty-two joules, was it? Yeah, ten to the thirty-two. Yeah, do we joules. have like a comparison to the the sun or something? Like, do I go? Uh, I- sure. So, so that amount of energy is ten. Well, it's two times ten to the twenty-five kilowatt hours. So that's um, a, a different unit of energy. Um, so roughly ten to the twenty-five. 
kilowatt hours. So that uh, kilowatts are a unit of power, um, so energy per second, which means that if I run this this laser beam for an hour, then it spits out, or then it has to produce 10 to the 25 kilowatts of power in order to dump that required amount of energy into the planet for an hour. So uh, in comparison, so a a kilowatt laser is really, really, really powerful. <laughs> so you can buy uh, your laser pointers that they they have something like five milliwatts of mm. power. So this is uh, so a kilowatt, for example, it was would be ten to the six times as powerful. Mm. A one watt laser is uh, is pretty dangerous, so it could blind you very easily, for example. And uh, but you can still buy them; they're still they're uh, available for commercial <laughs> consumption. A kilowatt laser, I. Cool. Let's just put a disclaimer. We're having fun on this podcast. Don't don't do it. Don't be stupid with lasers, dear <laughs> listeners. We're having fun here. We're just talking about theoretically getting our hands on some lasers. Don't be stupid. We're not responsible. That's true. Yeah. That, that said, please don't sue us. <laughs> uh, let's see if we can actually find a kilowatt laser. Not for I sale, see here the uh, the U.S. Army will test a three hundred kilowatt laser. Oh, there you go. Uh, a three hundred kilowatt. Cheerful. again purely for benevolent reasons i assume apparently an an imax projector array is about 30 kilowatts um there you go okay so there you go some some points of comparison so have you had this what was it 300 kilowatt laser that the that the u.s army is is producing then you would need 10 to the power of 23 or so of of those lasers in order to uh in order to power your your Death Star. Um, so that's it's quite a few, a quite a few, lot of lasers. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> and the, the, okay, so let's see what the sun puts out. I think it's actually it's it seems like it's kind of comparable, actually. It's so hard googling this stuff because it's like, oh, you want to buy solar panels? It's like, no, I'm trying to take <laughs> over the solar system. <laughs> exactly. Some uh, figure that I found for the the total power of the power output of the sun is about 10 to the 23 kilowatts. So it's actually kind of comparable. We want a power of tw- uh, 10 to the, what, what do we want? 10 to the 25 or so. Um, okay. So 100 times uh, more powerful than the sun. And that's for to blow up a planet over the course of an hour, right? right? Oh yeah, um, yeah. It's gonna take, it's gonna take <laughs> It's gonna like- take a little while. So maybe if you wanna, if you wanna, you know, um, bring that down a little bit, then you've got a, to a minute, maybe, then you, you need a 10 to, 10 to the 26 or something okay, like that, kilowatts. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, <laughs> we, we need 100 to 1,000 times more power than the sun puts out in total um, at, the, at the moment. All right. Well, we have the laser figured out, so just harnessing that much energy from the sun... If we can, yeah. if we can, I feel like we got the hard part over with. So <laughs> get, to get out our Dyson spheres and uh, we'll be right yeah. there. Although something else to consider is that when you use a laser pointer, right, or a, a laser, it sort of heats up a little bit, mm-hmm. produces a bit of heat. And I think from a very small amount of Googling <laughs> that I've done about the, uh, the sort of efficiency of these lasers, they are not actually particularly efficient at converting electricity to, to light. So some of that electricity energy is, is converted to heat and like a, a, a sort of decent percentage of that mm. energy. So you're dumping a lot of energy into your Death Star. You, you're going to need to dissipate that energy somehow. Uh, hopefully it's, it's not going to be 
too much to melt the Death Star, but but, but if you if you've got it on the order of t- ten to the thirty two joules of energy, or maybe maybe let's be generous and say ten to the thirty joules of energy that is going into your Death Star, then uh, that's yeah. <laughs> the the sauna in our Death Star is going to be mm. immaculate. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. In fact, um, let's see. So if we have we've got. Say say we have about 10 to the 30 joules of, of heat and we, we've got a Death Star of mass 10 to the 17 kilograms. So that's there's this formula that relates the heat or the change of temperature of an object based on the amount of heat that you put into it, the mass of the object, and uh, something called a specific heat capacity. So if we take the... Let's say it's made out of steel. You can take the specific heat capacity for steel, which is... 420 joules per kilogram per degree Celsius. So our formula is, for those following along at home, energy is, or heat, Q, is equal to mass times the specific heat capacity times the uh, change of temperature. So, cracking out the paper here, pen and paper, we've got a heat of 10 to the 30 joules, or uh, was it joules or kilojoules? I think it was joules, yeah. Joules, yeah. and we've got specific heat capacity of 420 joules per kilogram per degree Celsius. And we've got a mass of 10 to the 17 kilograms. So that's a change of temperature, 10 to the power of 10 Kelvin. <laughs> All right. That's, uh, that sounds like soup, if not... I think that's probably above the, above the melting the, yeah, point. Yeah, probably. But just 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 clears it. Just clears it. Um, <laughs> I while you were doing that, Campbell, mm-hmm. I was looking on Wikipedia, and it says mm-hmm. that the Death Star was made out of quadanium steel or quadanium alloy, which was uh-huh. an extremely durable metallic substance. Mm-hmm. Well, there you go. So it must have a. <laughs> Uh, an extremely high specific heat capacity. Nice. <laughs> well, cool. All right. Well, uh, well, now we know what we need to do to to make the Death Star. Yeah, some hiccups, some hiccups. But uh, listen, we don't do it because it's easy. We do it because <laughs> it's hard. Um, we do it because it's right. Right. It's, exactly. it's the right thing to exactly, do. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Listen, like I said, asking for a friend just. Trying to take over the gal listeners in Andromeda, you're safe, you're fine. Um, I guess until Andromeda and the Milky Way collide, but we're only sites are only set on the Milky Way right now, and all of these tests we have to do here in the solar system. So everybody is mostly safe for for right now, for a little while, um, and that's that. No, seriously, uh, <laughs> Campbell, thank you as always. This was a really fun episode. I mean, I mean, they're all fun in their own way, but. This, I, f- yeah, I, f- I think this is felt like I was able to hold nice. my water a little more than usual. I um, think you 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 came right in the end. Let's say, Brian, and I'm proud of you. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you everyone for for listening and uh, tuning in this episode. This has been a uh, get ready for this. I just came up with this. This has been a Gain Media production. Ooh, uh, wow, <laughs> incredible! That's a game changer. <laughs> Um, as always, this is Question Field, the place where you uh, ask your questions and we field them. But uh, all right. Thank you, everybody. Until next time. You've been listening to Question Field. 
Question Field is a Gain Media production and is produced by its hosts, Campbell McLaughlin and Brian Buchanan. For more information, please check us out on Instagram at questionfieldpod, on Twitter at questfieldpod, and on TikTok at questionfield. If you have a question you'd like to submit or would simply like to leave a message, please send us an email at questionfieldpod at gmail.com. Recently, the James Webb Telescope discovered five new stars located in the review section of your favorite podcast app. Thank you for listening.